Well, Todd, here we are. Episode one, our first episode of the From the Heart podcast. And I'm just honored that we get to kick this off with a true servant leader in Dr. Ken Blanchard. This was kind of what I had in mind with the whole launch of the From the Heart podcast was to really get into the heart of people like a Dr. Ken Blanchard, who just has, you know, world renowned fame for being an author and public speaker. And in our interview with him, we got to really sit down and get to know more about the man himself and not just about what he's done. That's on Google. Right. It's really it's why he's doing and done what he's done. So tell me a little bit about your impressions as we met with Ken and just that, that day. Yeah, well, it was interesting because I've told you, I didn't really know much about Ken. I, I knew his name. I knew he was an author, but I hadn't really dug into it. So I did some research before we went down as any good producer director Absolutely. <laughs> so I listened to his book, his The New One Minute Manager. And the thing that struck me, the besides the fact that it was really good, solid leadership advice is it was a story. The way that they presented yeah. it was creative. And it, it, I wanted to hear the person who came up with that idea. Yeah. And when we went down there and met with him and met with his staff and got to have lunch with him, like it was, it was an experience that lived up to what I expected after reading the book. Yeah. Great leaders tell great stories. And yeah. I think that that's one thing that Ken does well. And what really strikes me about him too is so much about leadership and servant leadership, which is a term that he didn't coin, but he certainly made pretty famous, yeah. is the whole idea of collaboration, working yeah. together with your people rather than dictating to them what they should do. And that day I observed, and I think you did as well, we chatted about this a bit. He had several of his people there in the studio with us that day. Yeah. And we had opportunities off camera to talk with some of them. And they all said, no, this man, he practices exactly what he's preaching. This isn't just a book. It's not just a philosophy. It's a way of life. Any observations or thoughts about what you saw as far as servant leadership or collaboration that day? I mean, I just echo what you said. Yeah. You, you saw it from him. You saw it from his people. And you saw the way, that, even the way that he addressed the waitress at the lunch that we yeah. were at. Like, he's just, he is the person that he inspires everyone to be. Right. And I think that is uh, just, I'm excited for the interview to, for people to get out of this. Me too. What we got to hear. Yeah. We had a chance to really dive into the early years of Ken Blanchard. What makes him tick? I talked a little bit about his wife, Margie and their relationship. Uh, and obviously the way, he, the way he talked about her is yeah. so beautiful. That was one of my favorite points of the whole interview. And I'm excited for our audience now to just kind of sit back, relax. And today we're bringing you our interview with Dr. Ken Blanchard. We hope you'll enjoy. This is From the Heart with Ed Hart, and I'm Ken Blanchard, and it's great to be here. So, Ken, thank you very much again this morning for joining us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, about yourself, your background, where you grew up, just, just whatever you'd like to share with us right now. Well, Ed, I think life is kind of a special occasion, and I had a great special occasion all, all my life. I, um, I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, right outside of New York City, and I had a Interesting upbringing. I went to a 95% Jewish elementary school and on Jewish holidays, they put us all in one room and I went to more bar mitzvahs and I did, <laughs> you know, baptisms as a kid. And I retired the Goya of the Month Award. And, uh, <laughs> nice. And then we merged into junior high with a 90, 95% uh, African-American elementary school that went to the Supreme Court in 61 to test a neighborhood school. And, and uh, that started busing around the country. And yeah. Since I was a basketball player and I was bright, I won all the elections as a compromise candidate. I <laughs> had a fabulous big tackle. with was a great buddy of mine, Meatball, about 6'4". <laughs> he was my campaign manager. Who are you voting for, baby? And, yeah. and then Bill Rookheiser, who became the editor of Fortune magazine, he helped me with my speeches and, and yes. all. So it was, a, it was a neat thing. And then uh, my dad and mom were pretty special people. My uh, dad grew up at West Point, and when he got yeah. out of high school— he wanted to go to West Point. His dad said, I think you should go away to school. And he said, well, if I can't go to West Point, I, Dad, I said, I'll go to the Naval Academy. And he did and graduated in 24. And they didn't need Naval officers in 24 because we had ended World War II and one. And World War One and two wasn't here, sure. They thought it was the end, war to end all wars. So at the end of his senior cruise, they let him out. And so January 25, he went to Harvard Business School, majored in finance, and went down onto Wall Street and built his career. He was about to become a vice president of National City Bank, and he came home in 1940. I was one year old and said to my mom, well, I quit today. She said, you did what? He said, yeah, I quit. She said, to do what? He said, I rejoined the Navy. She said, you got to be kidding me. He said, well, didn't I tell you when we got married that if the country got in trouble, I thought I owed it something, and Hitler's crazy, and the Japanese will be in this soon. And that's that great American thing. So he goes yeah. from a potential vice president 
to a second Louis. They put him in Brooklyn Navy Yard. And Pearl Harbor comes and looks like he's going to stay there because here he's 40 years old with no experience, and that wasn't his style. So one of his classmates who he knew well had stayed in and was in Washington, and he called him, and he said, what do you got for an old fart with no experience? <laughs> i got to get in the action. And so he said, let me check, Ted. And he called back a couple of days later. He said, Ted, all I have for you is a suicide group going into the Marshall Islands. And so he said, you got your man. Of course, he didn't tell my mom, but they gave him 12 LCIs, these landing craft infantry, that brought the Marines and the frogmen, which are the SEALs right. today, into the beach at Saipan, Kwajalein, Anna. We talk about 70% of his men were killed or wounded. And, but somehow he survived and he came home and he went back to National City for a couple of days and came home and said, well, I quit again, a bunch of draft dodgers. And <laughs> so he stayed in the Navy and actually retired as an admiral. But he was a amazing guy. When I won the president of seventh grade, I came home and I was all pumped up and I told him and he said, well, Ken, now that you're president of the seventh grade, your leadership training starts. He said, now that you're president, don't ever use your position. He said, great leaders are great wow. because people respect and trust them, not because they have power. He said, it's a myth in the military. It's my way or the highway. He said, sure, in battle, somebody's got to call the shots. But if you think like you're a big deal and you're better than your men, they'll shoot you before the enemy. <laughs> Interesting. And, uh, so he, he really kind of helped me a lot in my leadership. And then my mom, she had a wonderful philosophy of life. She said, don't you act like you're better than anybody else, but don't you let anybody else act like they're better than you. God didn't make any junk. Wow. He said, uh, there's a pearl of goodness, she said, in every human being, dig for it. And that's been my philosophy. And uh, there, there's just uh, goodness in everyone. And so I always kind of look for that. And so that was attractive to Margie when yeah. we met at Cornell because I was in a fraternity. And the typical fraternity style is you stayed in the fraternity and you sent barbs at all the other houses. And <laughs> so she mentioned to a friend or something about uh, Phi Gamma Delta, which I was a member of. And they'd say, ah, Phi Gam, he said, except for Ken Blanchard, you know, because <laughs> I knew people all over campus mm -hmm. in different fraternities, and so it was really, really kind of fun. So uh, life, is, life has been a special occasion ever since I, I was a wee one. So tell us about that first introduction with Margie. So obviously she had heard all, all these great things about you. Yeah. What did you heard? And uh, love at first sight, one of those stories? Well, or? she went out with all my friends, <laughs> and uh, she was going out with a good friend, and, and uh we were, we had both graduated, and she was one year behind, but it was senior week, and we were at parties, and so I was at a party at his house, and uh, and he, he and Margie were washing his car, and we're standing around, and he said, Ken, where are you going to be this summer? I said, I'm going to be up in at Cornell in Ithaca playing golf and taking a course to lighten my load for my master's degree, and, and Margie said, well, I'll be there, too. She was a speech therapist, and his father had died, and he was back running a dairy farm in New Jersey. And he said, I doubt if I'll get up, Ken. Could you take Margie out for a drink sometime and give me, Gee, I guess me so, a favor? Huh? And so yeah. I said, well, maybe, you know. Yeah. So when I got back to after uh, uh, a while and got back onto campus, a friend of mine who I was rooming with said, I'm going out to eat tonight with Annie Van Order. And she was a fraternity, sorority sister of Margie's. And he was going to be the best man at her wedding to his best friend. And. So they were just friends, and I said, well, let me call Margie McKee. She's almost married, too. So I <laughs> called Margie, and I went out, and she was working out at this camp with paraplegics and all these kids with major problems. And I said, why would you be out here working with them? And in an eight-mile ride into town, she told me why she was there, and I went, oh. You know, so I f took her back and went back to the, our living quarters, and my roommate, who I went out with, said, I've never seen a guy fall that quick. <laughs> I said, what nice. do you mean? He said, you were drooling in your, <laughs> your juice there. And That's so, excellent. Uh, uh, I had to talk her into it, but uh, yeah. she's a pretty special gal. Absolutely. So uh, we got married uh, uh, about a, two weeks after she graduated in the yeah. following June. And you stayed back there, back on the East Coast, for quite some time before yes, you came out here eventually? Yeah, we did. Uh, the, uh, our first... Uh, uh, year I was getting my master's degree at Colgate, so we okay. lived in Hamilton, New York. And yeah. Margie was a speech therapist, and so different because she, she was making thirty five hundred dollars as a speech therapist, and I had a two thousand dollar fellowship. So we had fifty five hundred dollars, and we thought we were in pig heaven. Absolutely. We had a, Back then an apartment building, you know, apartment for seventy five dollars a month, you know, and. <laughs> and so after we left there, we went back to Cornell because I was going to work on my doctor's degree and. Margie started working on her master's degree, and 
So we spent three years there, and, and then uh, we went to Ohio University, the first teaching job, and it wasn't actually a teaching job because it's interesting, uh, you know, with my writing is my faculty said I couldn't write, <laughs> and if I wanted to be at a university, I should be a college administrator because I couldn't write. You were going to be a writer. So uh, when I got my first job, I was a, a assistant to the dean of uh, business at the Ohio University College of Business. And, and when I got there, he said, Ken, I want to teach you to teach a course. And I had never thought about teaching a course, you know, because if you don't write, you perish at universities. Yep. And he said, I don't care about that. So uh, Paul Hersey had just arrived, and he put me in his uh, department, and I gave me a management course. And I did my doctoral dissertation on Fred Fiedler, who was the first situational leadership okay. theorist. And so I knew that field, and after a couple of weeks, I came home and said to Margie, this is what I ought to be doing. I ought to be teaching. And she said, well, what about the writing? I said, we'll figure that out. And so I heard Hersey taught a great leadership course. And so I said, Paul, can I sit in next semester? And he said, nobody audits my course. If you want to take it for credit, you're welcome. And I thought that was interesting because I had a doctor's degree, and he didn't. He wants me to take his course for credit. <laughs> so I told Margie, and she said, is he any good? And I said, he's supposed to be great. She said, well, get your ego out of the way and take his damn course. <laughs> So I had to talk to the registrar into letting me in because I had a PhD. And so I did, and I wrote all the papers and all. In June 67, Paul comes to my office, and he said, Ken, I've been teaching leadership for 10 years. I think I'm better than anybody. But he said, in writing, I'm kind of ner a nervous wreck, and I, but I've been looking for a good writer like you. <laughs> you know, he read my wow. papers. Would you write a textbook with me? And I had never thought about writing. And I said, well, we should be Great team, you can't write, and I'm not supposed to. So let's do it. <laughs> That's quite a combination. And so best seller we, waiting yeah, up. and it's in its tenth edition now, and wow. kind of still sells a lot today. And so uh, I went to the dean, and I said, I quit uh, as an administrator. I'm going to be a, a professor. I got a book coming out, and he said, you can't quit. I said, why not? He says, because I was going to fire you. <laughs> he said, because you're nice. a lousy administrator, which <laughs> I was. <laughs> so now you can't write, then you can't be an administrator. Yeah, so, so. He's, it was kind of a photo finish between. When he fired me, and yeah, you got and, your, you got him and, first, and uh, when I did, so it was kind of fun. So, I I think life is kind of what happens to you when you're planning on doing something else. And so I've always kept my head up and said, hmm, "That's interesting. Maybe yeah. I'll try that." It's kind of like that line: "If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans." Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. For sure, say, yeah, yeah, I got something else in mind yeah. for you. So tell me how. So obviously, your writing career took off with the textbook that is obviously, as you mentioned, been out for, for decades now. Tell us how the idea for the One Minute Manager came about. What was the impetus well, behind that? Well, we came out here uh, uh, from University of Massachusetts where I was a full professor and Margie had just finished her doctor's degree. Okay. We came out for one year to work with Paul Hersey to do another edition of our textbook. Text, and, right. and we got invited to a, uh, a cocktail party for authors in town by a woman by the name of Adelaide Bree. She wrote visualizations, directing the movies of your mind. She was one of the first people on self-curing of cancer, and she also sure. wrote a book on Est, which Warner Earhart is the only one that he endorsed. Okay. And um, so since I had a textbook, I got invited. So <laughs> we go there, and Spencer Johnson was there, and he wrote children's books. You know, he wrote yeah. this Value Tales series, The Value of Courage, The Story of Jackie Robinson, The Value of Determination, The Story of Helen Keller, The Value of... Honestly, the story Teaching of Abe kids Lincoln. about values, sure, right. Yeah, and so Margie met him first and hand-carried him over and said, you two guys ought to write a children's book for managers. They won't read anything else. <laughs> and so Spencer was working on a one-minute scolding with a psychiatrist about disciplining kids. And so I invited him to a seminar I was doing in town the next week, and he came and laughed. And at the end of the seminar, he came running up, and he said, forget parenting. Let's do the one-minute manager. And that was the second week in November, and and since he was a children's book writer and I'm a storyteller, we decided to write a parable and we added yeah. one-minute goal-setting, one-minute praising to what we call the one-minute reprimand. Yeah. And uh, we had a draft by the time we went to the Rose Bowl in the end of December. And, and then uh, I said, let's go to New York and get a publisher. And Spencer said, no. He said, they'll beat us up and take all the money. You know, yeah, exactly. He said, uh, we should self-publish. And so we did and uh, sold 20,000 copies that year with no advertising. Uh, particularly from a group called the Young Presidents Organization that kind White of Baylor, ad sure. adopted uh, me. And and then when we went to New York the following year, we got a lot of interest, and it came out in September 82, and we were on the Today Show, and it went on the bestseller list the next week, and 
<clears throat> never left for like two or three years. I mean, yeah. who would have ever thunk it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think we were tired of hearing about Japanese management, you know, because the, suddenly the three best-selling books were Tom Peters wrote in, in, in Search, Search of Excellence, of Excellence yeah. and then John Nesbitt wrote uh, Megatrends. And mm -hmm. it was interesting, all three of us were at Cornell together. Wow. Uh, Tom Peters and I were fraternity brothers, and Nesbitt was a graduate assistant in my department. So I tell my Harvard guys, ah, there you go. It's, it's Cornell, really. That's right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the Ivy League school you want to go to, right? Yeah. When did you, I mean, you mentioned you were on the Today, Today Show and you sold yeah. 20,000 copies pretty yeah. early on. When did you realize, or, or knowing you, you're one of the more humble men I've ever met, you probably still don't realize what the impact of this book has been on the world. Yeah. Was there a point, though, where you thought, wow, this has really become bigger than me? This, is, this has turned into something beyond just Spencer and I writing a book. Yeah, well, when it went on the bestseller list, it just stayed on there. Sure. So many people were saying, and, you know, um, I've always believed in what's the 20% that's going to give you the 80%, you know, sure. and when Spencer and I sat down and said, you know, I mean, if a manager knows one minute goal setting, all good performance starts with clear goals, all good performance starts there. Yeah. And then once the goals are clear, you ought to wander around, see if you can catch them doing something right and give them a one minute praising. Yeah. And then if they're not performing as well as they should, for the new one minute manager, we change the one minute reprimand to one minute redirects because redirect, I think right. it's much better for modern uh, philosophy. Uh, and, uh, you know, those three things will make you a good manager if that's yeah. all you, you yeah. learned. And I think that people realize that. And so I'm amazed even, you know, that's 1982. And right, 37 years <laughs> Here we are. And this came applies. out uh, a few years ago. The new one-minute manager is still selling like crazy. What's the significant difference in the new one-minute manager versus the original? Well, the one-minute reprimand was a change. Okay, the re-changing to the redirect. And then... Uh, you know, in 1982, uh, leadership was more hierarchical in nature. Right. Uh, and so the one-minute manager was the one that determined the goals and decided to give praises and uh, reprimands and all that. And we decided that today, you know, number one, uh, in those days, everybody that worked for you was right around you. Nobody was, you know, managing people online and yeah. all. And so all we, the remote work areas. Yeah, yeah, we've now just opened that whole thing up and... And it's much more of, I think, uh, uh, Ed, the big change in management in the last 30 years or so is it used to be top-down. Right. I think the young people and people today, they want what we call side-by-side -side leadership, which is they don't want your job, but they want to work to together, a, they collaborate. Want, they want to be a partner. Yeah. And I think that's uh, really, and so we, this is more side-by-side -side leadership now. What type of challenges have you faced in your organization in that transition going from maybe top-down when you first started to, to today as you're talking about more collaborative and side-by-side? -side? Have you had to face any challenges yourself in that transition? Well, I think it's uh, getting people to really believe that you want them to be major players in decision-making sure. and all, you know, when they're used to kind of looking up the hierarchy for things. And so that was a, a, a journey. And uh, so I was smart enough that... Margie should be president, you know, because she was really much better at that kind sure. of thing. Uh, my title is I'm the chief spiritual officer. I'm the, the head cheerleader, you know. Excellent. I used to be chairman of the board, but I didn't like that title. And I had lunch with Max Dupree, the legendary mm -hmm. chairman of Herman Miller, right. a number of years ago. And I said, Max, what's your job as the chairman of this great company? And he said, Ken, I have to be like a third grade teacher. I have to say the vision and values and goals over and over and over again until <coughs> people get it right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, and so I thought, wow, that's really a powerful uh, thing. And uh, Margie uh, uh, stepped down as president at that time and was heading up the office of the future because I think you got to manage the present and create the future at the same time. Sure. I think a big mistake organizations make is that they have uh, – the same group trying to do both roles, and they send people with present time responsibilities to plan your future. I think they'll kill your future because they're either either overwhelmed with the present or have vested interests in it. Sure. So I think it be, should be two separate tasks. That would be a president of the present and a president of the future. So Margie ran the future. And they did a study of what creates motivation, a motivating environment. And uh, I thought, well, it really was interesting uh, about 
that. And so I said, you know, rather than chairman, I ought to be the chief spiritual officer go. because it was how do you create spirit in a workplace? Yeah. That's what they were studying. Get that energy. And so I, I leave a morning message uh, I was gonna ask about every, that. every day for everybody. And I do three things. One, I praise people, you know, if people are doing a good job, uh, I, you know, pat them on the back and all that kind of thing. And, and then uh, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, try to talk about, uh, you know, where we're going as a company mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and that. And then I like to, you know, give an inspirational message, something that I've heard recently or, or at all. I had a letter from a guy from New Zealand. I had sent some books a while back and he wrote me and said, Ken, uh, you know, the uh, business I think you're in is, is teaching people the, the power of love rather than the love of power. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of like that. Yeah. And so, uh, but it's uh, really fun. We're, we're starting a big customer service initiative, you know, that, uh, you know, how do we, how can we really be the best at, at that? So this morning I was talking about, you know, how do you become an eagle versus a duck, you know? This is the duck, yeah. yeah eagles soar above the crowd. And, yeah. You know, you say, you got a job for me, or you, can you do this, you know, like in Nordstrom's, no problem. Where ducks go quack, quack, is our policy, <laughs> quack, quack, I just work here, quack. Cool policy quack. and procedure over people. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so. So a lot of people who hopefully will be watching this lead big organizations. And one of the challenges that I've noticed, I work in an organization with 10,000 employees. And yeah. how do you as a leader really get to know your people? I know you, you, you do the walking around, you get to know them and so forth in the, in the day to day. But what advice would you have for that leader that is maybe stepping into a role, leading a big group of people for the first time and to really get to know the people he works or he or she leads? Well, I, I think, first of all, Max's advice is really good to keep on shouting out the vision and the values okay. and, and all. But I think that the whole thing of getting out of your office, you know, and uh, the organizations that are run by self-serving leaders, you know, they don't leave their office. They even have a, <coughs> you know, a bathroom in their office. I right, yeah. had some top managers. I made them board up, board up the bath bathroom. <laughs> yeah. So they get out of get the, outside of the office and yeah, see somebody. Yeah, right. wander around and yeah. see people and cheer yeah. them on, and, and uh, because that's a really important thing that people see that you're visible and that you care about them, and yeah. and uh, when you stop and say hello, you're interested in what they're doing. Sure, you're really listening. Yeah. 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 So you and Margie founded the, the Blanchard Companies before One Minute Manager came out. Is that correct? Yeah, 1979. One minute manager came out in '82. So when you look back at the last 40 years of this company, congratulations, by the way, mm -hmm. on your 40th anniversary this wow. year. I know it's crazy. Half your, literally half your life. Isn't that I just amazing? gave away your age, yeah. shouldn't I? I that's shouldn't right. have done that. My yeah. 59th anniversary of my 21st birthday. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. We'll, we'll have to get cards from Hallmark made like that. That's right. When you look back at the f the first 40 years of of the Blanchard Companies, if, if you could pinpoint one or two things you're just most proud of of what the organization has been able, been able to accomplish, anything well, that jumps out at you? I think the biggest thing I'm proud of is I've said from the beginning that when you hire somebody and they walk through the front door and you see them for the first time at work, if you don't feel a chemical difference in your body because you're glad to see them, why would you hire them? There's enough, great. Jer enough jerks in the world. <laughs> we don't need them working for us. And we also give a $400 bonus to any of our people if a position opens up and they recommend a friend or a relative and they get their job that the job because uh, we just soon have people's friends and relatives yeah. if they're good ones and so people tell new people now be sh sure you don't uh, say something mean about somebody <laughs> because you might be talking to a relative you know and you know we we have a couple here who has a couple of, yeah. of their kids working here and you know and, and the company's run by Margie and I and then our son Scott heads up the uh, and works closely with the product development and speaking. Sure. And our daughter, Debbie, heads up marketing. And Margie's brother, Tom, who was born when she was a freshman at, at Cornell, he's our uh, CEO. And, and, uh, wow. so, uh, and then Scott's wife, Madeline, heads up our coaching business. And so we formed a family council. And I said, you know, if I was giving advice to a, a family business, you know, what, what would keep you together? biggest problem with family businesses they don't talk enough absolutely and then people start making assumptions about yeah. things and and all and so scott was the one that pushed us when they all started to work with us 25 years ago he had been working with a company where they hired an outside consultant to work with their family and so 
we hired a John Eldridge, who had been a, a professor at University of Pennsylvania in right. entrepreneurship. And, and so <laughs> we meet as a family for one day every quarter, and we've done it for 25 years with an outside consultant, and nobody's ever missed a meeting. And That's great. So, you know, there's no issues that don't get dealt with. Sure. Yeah. What types of challenges? I mean, I, I, I do a little bit of work with family-owned companies, as you know, and I know that you shared at our Family Business Hall of Fame event last year. What types of issues do you discuss? I mean, is it literally anything across the map of family, emotion, business, operational? Just nothing is really off the table? No, it isn't. And what's really neat is if <coughs> one of the kids or Margie's brother has this problem, they can initially talk to the consultant. Okay. about what it is, you know, and we, uh, we're we pretty open with, with each other, and, and uh, there's, so there's no, nothing that's uh, taboo to, to talk about, you know, and so uh, uh, people really ask, like, Mar- like Scott's wife, Madeline, who heads up our coaching business, she says, you work with him, and, and, but you also vacation with him, and all kinds of, why did you <laughs> do that? really like each other. She said, well, it's because I love them, you yeah, know. Absolutely. And uh, so that uh, that that's uh, that's important that, that people really uh, have their best buddies and their family working with us. And yeah. What challenges have you faced being a family business? What advice would you give to someone that may not be having those? Maybe they're trying that, they're communicating, they're having these meetings, but yet they just can't cross that line to where they can really work harmoniously together. Yeah. Well. You certainly got to bring an outside consultant okay. in and deal with it. And, and uh, you know, I mean, if if one member of the family is disruptive, you have to confront that. I always yeah. say when in doubt, confront. And when all else fails, try honesty, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so that uh, you just need to say, you know, this isn't working out. What can we do to get it on track, you know. Because sure. uh, what you don't want to do is lose your family for the business, but you also don't want to lose your business for the family. Absolutely. So, so Are you a family business or a business family? That's a big that's question right. that we yeah. ask a lot. What's first? What's your priority? Yeah. That's right, yeah. Lead like Jesus. Yeah. You and Margie found, formed this foundation. Yeah. I know the idea behind it is to really create servant leaders, but go a little deeper for us, if you had, what, what's the What was the idea? When well, What was the coffee table conversation where you first it actually, decided to it, do it this? It started with an old fraternity brother of mine, uh, Phil Hodges, who lives in Los okay. Angeles. And when the women and manager came out... Uh, I wasn't much of a believer, you know. I had been named after a Presbyterian minister, and I had gone to Sunday school. And <laughs> in junior high, though, I switched to the Methodist Church because they had a better basketball team. Yeah, there you but, go. But when I went off to Cornell, you know, the Ivy League's not much for God and kind of drifted away. And then I met Margie, and we got married. And she said, I think we ought to get back in our faith, and we did. And we even ran a junior high school program for the Presbyterian Church in Ithaca when we were getting when I was getting my doctor's degree. and But we went to a higher university for our first uh, big job, and uh, uh, the minister we really liked in town was leading the student sit-ins against the Vietnam War. Okay. And his congregation fired him in the most vicious thing we had ever seen. And, and Margie and I said, if that's what Christianity is all about, you can have it. And yeah. we really turned our backs on it. Our kids were two and three at that time, and when they turned 18, if you said give me the Lord's Prayer or I'll hurt you, you would have had to hurt him. I mean, <laughs> Wouldn't have known it for how, anything. That's how we had drifted. But uh, but when the one-minute manager came out, Phil Hodges called me and said, Ken, let's walk on the beach. And and we were walking down the beach in La Jolla, and he said, why do you think this book was so successful? You think you're really brighter than other people? <laughs> and I said, no, Hodge. I said, somehow God must be involved. And I don't know why I said God, wow. but my mom was praying for me. And... and uh, and he said, oh, thank God, you know. And and then the minute I opened myself to God, then all of a sudden God started sending me people. So I get a call when I write a book with Norman Vincent Peale. And I mm-hmm. said, if, wow. is he still alive, you know? <laughs> I mean, my parents had gone to his church before I was sure. born. He was 86 years old at the yeah. time. And Ruth, I think, was 79, his wife. And they were just amazing. And when we first met them, they said, the Lord's always had you on his team. You just haven't suited up yet. <laughs> So <laughs> like suiting up became yeah. the, the cry, but they were just so full of love. And he and I ended up writing The Power of Ethical Management, yeah. Integrity Pays. And and then all of a sudden I'm flying to uh, to, New Mexico, to Mexico City from Dallas for a YPO thing. And God puts Bob Buford across the aisle for me. And 
Wow. He uh, started a thing called halftime, you know, yeah. yep. where he realized that people in their 40s and 50s yeah. are trying to move from success to significance yeah. and all. And, and so uh, we're talking. And so I went into my wallet to get a card to give him. And in amongst the dollar bills was this little booklet that Phil Hodges had given me. It was the, uh, Bill Bright's Four Spiritual Laws. And I can't remember putting it in my wallet, but there it was. And so I said, you know, Bob, you mind if I ask you some questions? So the first law was that, you know, God has a plan for our lives. I didn't have any problem for that. But the second one was that we're sinners. And I, I didn't like sin yeah, for two, like two reasons, you know, because uh, I tell you, if you call somebody a sinner, they don't say thanks for sharing, <laughs> you know, appreciate, appreciate your yeah. fee- feedback. Yeah. And uh, so and I, the other thing I could never understand is the concept of original sin. I mean, how can a baby in a crib be bad? And Buford, he's quite a guy, and he yeah. said, Ken, uh, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, uh, do you think you're as good as God? He said, obviously not. He said, I said, if that's God, that's perfection. He said, okay. Um, he said, why don't we give God 100, you know, and we'll give axe murderers five. And he said, Mother Teresa was alive. She's a pretty good gal. <laughs> why don't we give her a 95? And he said, you know, Blanchard, you're not bad. You're trying to help people. I'll give you a 75 or an 80. He said, the Lord sent Jesus down to make up the difference between you and 100. And I thought, wow. What a way to talk about grace, you know. Yeah, it really was, I love that. was powerful. And then he turned me over to Bill Hybels, who built mm-hmm. the Willow Creek Community Church yeah. down at, uh, at uh, Mexico City. And, and uh, Bill said, Ken, you got no difference between uh, religion and uh, following Jesus. I said, what's the difference is how it's spelled. <laughs> he said, religion is spelled do, this whole bunch of to-do lists about you. Yeah. And he said, most people with to-do lists give up because they never know when enough is enough. It's and, overwhelming. Yeah, and the yeah. guy that wrote A Road Less Travel By, I forget his name, but... Robert Frost. Uh, he was a uh, Catholic for first 19 years, never ate meat on Friday. And one week the Pope announced that eating meat on Friday was no longer a big sin. And he said, I mean, how do you change the rules? What about the people in hell on a meat wrap, you know? <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, yeah. And so, it would have been uh, nice to get that news yesterday. And so I will say, well, the neat thing about following Jesus, it's, it's spelled done. There's, there's no other rules, yeah. you know, and you can't uh, do anything. And that's really... And he said, Blanche, I don't know why you haven't signed up a lot sooner. He <laughs> said, because you get three consultants for the price of one. There you go. You know, that's you right. get the father who started it, the son who lived it, and, and the Holy Spirit is your day-to-day operational manager, which I thought was a great way of talking about that. Most people don't know what to say about the Holy Spirit, but it's a day-to-day operational manager. And so uh, so that was a really uh, powerful thing. And he said, you know, you can, you know, suit up anytime you want uh, down in here. Yeah. I said, what do I have to do? He said, all you have to do is bow your head and say, Lord, I can't make it to 100 by myself. Mm-hmm. I accept Jesus as my Savior and all. And so I kept on thinking about it and all. And I just uh, said, well, I'll, let me keep on thinking about it. So we were having trouble with a guy that we had brought in to be president of our company. And I was <coughs> meeting Margie for dinner and I was coming up from downtown and I was uh, thinking so hard I was getting a headache. And <laughs> all of a sudden I realized, hey, I got these three consultants. You know, you what go. am I trying into to them. find to figure this out by yeah. myself? And I said, Lord, I'm driving so I can't bow my head completely, but I, I get it. I can't make it to 100 by myself. And so when I walked to the restaurant, Margie said, what happened to you? She sort of different. So I told her, you know. And she hadn't suited up yet, but she did so shortly after that. Yeah. But it was, uh, but when when I suited up, uh, uh, I got on the Hour of Power with Robert Shula okay. from the One Minute Manager, and he said, yeah. "Ken, I love the One Minute Manager," and he said, "You know, who's the greatest One Minute Manager?" And I said, "Who's that?" He said, "Jesus." I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, he was really clear on goals. Isn't that your first secret One Minute Goal?" So yeah, <laughs> and he said, "You and Tom Peters didn't invent management by wandering around." He said, "Jesus did. He wandered from one little village there to another." If anybody showed any interest, he'd heal him. He'd praise him. Isn't that your second secret One Minute Prayer? Yeah, <laughs> and he said, "If people stepped out of line, he wasn't afraid to give him a One Minute Reprimand." He threw the money lenders out of the temple. Isn't that your third secret One Minute Reprimand? Yeah, he said. He a, so I go, "Wow." So I started reading the Gospels, and I just laughed because everything I had ever taught about leadership, Jesus did with these 12 incompetent guys he hired. I mean, you wouldn't hire that lot. And, you know, with situational leadership in the beginning, he tells them where to go, what to wear, what to do, and all. And you see him change his leadership style from directing to coaching to supporting and the yeah. end of management.
Matthew, he delegates and says, go and, and the make disciples. he does, absolutely. Yeah, and so, uh, so I found out that they weren't teaching it in the churches or anything. And so uh, Phil and I decided uh, we would maybe do something. And I was the f- keynote final speaker at Bill Bob Buford's first big faith walk leadership, uh, uh, I mean, faith works that he had uh, conference on being moving from success to significance. Mm-hmm. And I said to all these people who were quitting their jobs and going out and working for nonprofits, I said, you don't have to quit your job. You can move from success to significance if you would start leading your company like Jesus. And people went, whoa, that's <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. How, how do I find out more about that? And so that's when like Phil Jesus. and I co- co- called, started Faith Walk Leadership to kind okay. of be a joint thing with Buford. But then we, when we formed a board, we got a guy on the board who was a brand manager guy, and he said, you know, you're all about Jesus, so you, you can say that the business, you know, is to a Faith Walk leadership, but the company should be known as Lead Like Jesus. And the minute we used his name, the thing took Just off. Just clicked. Yeah, we're, we're in 20, 25 nations yeah. around the world. Wow. So it's uh, everybody around the world loves Jesus. They don't necessarily like Christians because we got too many <laughs> Pharisees in Christianity yeah. who are out judging people. I tell people that Jesus said several things. Number one, you'll be known as my disciples by how you love each other. You mm-hmm. know, And then he said, judge not or you shall be judged. And what are we sitting around judging yeah. uh, people? And uh, then I remember Peter Drucker became a, a follower of Jesus and you know he grew up in you know, in Europe and all, and was, I think, even grew up as a Jew. Yep. And I said, why did you become a Christian? He said, there's no better deal. That great <laughs> Drucker voice. I said, well, he yeah. says, who else has grace? <laughs> there you, you go. You know, I mean, he said, uh, you know, that's uh, that's really uh, yeah. special, you know. I mean, he said that if you do something wrong uh, and you get disciplined, you, 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 you get pay for what you did, you know. Mercy, you'd get less than what you do. Right. You know, um, mercy, somebody else takes the hit. Yeah. There's no better deal. <laughs> yeah. So a question for you here. So we've we've talked about your business and leadership success, your books that you've written. You lead a, a large company, a worldwide company. Obviously, your faith is, is evident, mm-hmm. not just in your words, but in your actions and mm-hmm. in everything you do, the message you leave every mm-hmm. day, your discussion about grace. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's a great trait for a leader is mm-hmm. grace. How do you marry the two? There's a lot of people who lead companies who are very strong Christians, for example, yes. or strong in their faith, regardless That's of what right, their yeah. belief is. So yeah. kind of a two-part question. Yeah. How do you lead a company from that space without worrying about potentially offending non-believers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or what would you say to a non-believer who, yeah. they, they hear your message, they yeah. know that grace and faith yeah. is so important yeah. to you. What, what would be the message to them? Well, Zig Ziglar really helped me in that. Okay. I was a big fan of Ziggy. He, and we did some programs together, and he was always willing to share his faith. And he said, Ken, there's no problem sharing your faith as long as you're talking about what's important to you. You're not trying to convert, it on somebody else. convert anybody okay. else because they can't say, well, that's not important to you. Sure. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, as chief spiritual officer, you know, I talk about <laughs> God periodically yeah. and all, but I don't force it on people. And we have every faith and non-faith in our right. company. and. Nobody seems to mind. And uh, so I think that's really key. It's, a, it's about that. I think the next great evangelist movement is going to be demonstration, not proclamation. I like that. You know, that... Uh, Watch what you I want, do, don't listen to what I say. Yeah, just yeah. you want people to believe what you do, then behave differently. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, have you had much pushback? No, not really. Awesome. You know, in the beginning when we started Lead Like Jesus, I got <laughs> comments from people that they said I was a new ager disguised as a Christian, you know, <laughs> and I would email them back and said, you know, blessings to you. Yeah, there you, you know, go. And, yeah. and thank you for noticing what I'm doing. And, yeah. you know, I never confronted people and got in arguments with people, you know. Yeah. So what's next for the Blanchard Company's 40th anniversary this yeah. year? What do you see on the horizon? Well, we'd, we'd love to still impact more people. I mean, our mission is that someday everyone everywhere will be impacted by somebody who, you know, is uh, situational yeah. in their leadership. And, and that uh, 
really knows how to use different strokes for different folks. And so uh, we want to constantly expand. And well, we just had a big uh, client conference, we call it our summit. And we had 51 people from around the world. And one of the guys from the, because after the two-day conference, we had an international conference, said that this is what I, th I believe peace is about because we had people there from countries who were at war with each other but they were coming to learn about leadership and hmm. and that kind of thing. Well, and I, I think that's uh, that's what you really want to do. So we want to just keep on expanding uh, sure. ours, not to, you know, go and make huge profits and all, although, you know, you want to make enough money to keep in business. Absolutely. And so uh, we're, we're around 60 million now. And which wow. Is Congratulations. Pr pretty that's, amazing. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, you know, the YPO, the young presidents, they pushed us to start our own company when we were just here for one year sabbatical leave. And they said, no, you can't go back to the university to start your own company. And Margie and I said, we we can't even balance our own checkbook. <laughs> How are we going to run a business? Yeah, and they said, we'll help you. And five YPO presidents, uh, one from Oregon, one from San Diego, one from Mexico City, one from Pennsylvania, and one from Illinois, all helped us start the company and, and helped us uh, stay busy. And... Um, so it was uh, really kind of uh, wonderful to see that kind of growth and yeah. and all. But uh, what's the target company? I mean, what not the name, obviously, but are, is there a, typically a target range for the, that you're looking at? Uh, no, large, we, publicly we, held or privately, or no. But you know, a lot of our customers are larger companies. Yeah. But we also now have a, a Blanchard Foundation and Institute that Margie's now heading up. And what we're trying to do is. Uh, uh, teach young people about self-leadership, you know, so mm -hmm. they are they don't act like victims. And yeah, and we have a program for, you know, junior high, high school, college kids and all. And we're trying to now start to get our customers to say, do you care about, you know, your people's kids? And everybody does. Well, sure. How about doing this? Because we're a nonprofit, so we're not trying to make any money on that. Right. And uh, it's just amazing <laughs> the impact on young people when they find out that uh, they're responsible for the condition they're in and they shouldn't be yeah. complaining, you know. And yep. So, uh, What excites you about the, the future of the younger generation, those folks that you're serving through this foundation? And well, I, I think they want to make a difference. They yeah. don't just want to come to work to make a living, and I think right. that's important to recognize. That's why the side-by-side -side leadership, I think, is really key. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, because they're... they're they're ready to go, and I, I, I'm very optimistic about them, you know, and everybody says the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you know, and I think if you look back in history, every every century, you know, there's, there's been, been something. There's been crazy stuff yeah. going on, but we just need to trust, you know, and I, the big thing I'm interested in now is servant leadership. I was you just going to go there. Yeah, because I, I think the world's in desperate need of a different leadership role model, because We've seen what self-serving leaders can do in every sector of society. I mean, look at Washington now. I mean, yeah. it's not just you know, Trump is a problem. The whole system is a self-serving system. They're try not trying to solve problems. They're just trying to get reelected. Get reelected yeah. and all that. And and you look at countries. You know, like uh, uh, you you want Rwanda. You know, that was they were killing people, and then they got a wonderful Christian leader and just yeah. completely turned, flipped. turned that uh, around and. And uh, so people ask me, well, who, who engages in servant leadership in our company? Well, I said only the leaders of their industry, like uh, Wegmans and Grocery and mm -hmm. Disney and Entertainment and Southwest Airlines and, and the airline Just some of these business. small companies that are figuring yeah. it out, yeah. And Nordstrom's and, yeah. and retail and, uh, you know, Synovus and financial services. And, right. You know, uh, that to me... John Maxwell, in our new book, Servant Leadership in Action, in the forward said he doesn't know any way to get great results and great human satisfaction besides servant leadership. Hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, at, when I talk about servant leadership to people, they often think I'm talking about the inmates running the prison or trying to please everybody, but they don't realize that there's two roles in servant leadership. There's the leadership role, which is about vision and direction and goals, and that responsibility is with a hierarchy. It doesn't mean you don't involve people. But if your people don't know what the vision is and the direction and the goals are, shame on you. It's your responsibility. Right. That's the leadership. 
But once the, that's clear, then you turn the pyramid upside down and we move to the servant part of servant leadership where now all the managers work for their people right. to try to help them How can win, we help you succeed and accomplish the goals and yeah. all that kind of thing. And so it's a, uh, that book I ended up getting, you know, 45 people to yeah. contribute and they're all leaders in the field like Simon Sinek and Brene Brown and Marshall Goldsmith and you got Phil Patrick, on there. Sure. Uh, Lencioni and, you know, and some faith-based people. Greg Grishel has got one of the biggest churches in America yeah. down in Oklahoma City. And, and uh, well, I was amazed when the book first came out. It was on the bestseller list for both spiritual books and, and also yeah, for trade yeah, that's uh, excellent. books. And uh, because, uh, you know, Jesus was an incredible model of servant leadership. Right. Uh, you know, when he ended up washing the feet of the disciples, you know. <laughs> Talk about servant. Yeah, he yeah. said, you you know, and a lot of people say, if you're a servant leader, you're going to lose your position. What did he say after he finished washing their feet? You call me, you know, you know, Lord, you call me this, and rightly so, but just as I have done for you, do for others. Yeah. And so uh, it's uh, it's not soft management. It's just one that realizes that vision and direction and goals need to be clear. And then uh, once you do that, you work for your people. And one of the big problems in organizations, Ed, is that uh, they have this performance management system where, you know, you have performance planning where you set goals and objectives and day-to-day coaching where you're supposed to help them right. win. And then you have a performance evaluation. And when you ask people, what, where do you spend your most time? Those three, the biggest answer is performance evaluation because yeah. they're sitting around filling out forms uh, and trying to know, fix behavior. Yeah, and they also feel that they have to have a normal distribution curve. You know, you have to screw a certain percentage of your yeah. people, which I thought is the most absurd thing. I yeah. ask people all the time, how many of you go out and hire losers? You know, we yeah. lost some of our worst people last year. We need to hire some <laughs> new losers to fill the low <laughs> slots. No, you either hire great people you steal from other companies and then you hire people with potential winners. And, sure. And so how do we actually uh, help them win? Well, you do it through servant leadership. And Gary Ridge, we have a master's degree program in at the University of San Diego. Yeah. And uh, I looked at all the MBA programs and they don't teach much about leadership. They stuff it in an organizational behavior class. And we think leader is a, leadership is a transformational journey starting with self where you got to learn about who you are I find that most of the leaders who are problems in their organization are scared little kids inside. Wow. And the way they protect themselves and their inferiority complex is, to, is control needs. And um, that uh, the ones that are really able to serve and all are very comfortable with who they are. So we start off with you know, three courses on helping people understand who they are. And right. Margie and I teach the third one on determining your leadership point of view. And then we move to one-on-one -on -one leadership where you're trying to build trust mm -hmm. uh, with people. And then we move to team leadership where you're trying to you know, build a sense of, of community. And then finally, organizational leadership where you're trying to build a cult culture. Right. And um, so Gary Ridge, who was, became the president of WZ40 right at that time, was in our first cohort. And he got excited about this and he said, how come we don't do this in business. And so he started a thing at WD-40 called Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. Interesting. And so we ended up writing a book entitled Help People Win at Work. That's right. And the subtitle is a business philosophy called Don't uh, Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. And so in the beginning of the year, every WD-40 manager sits with each of their direct reports and they first look at the organizational goals. And then they look at that person's job description and they come up with three to five uh, observable, measurable goals. If they accomplish it, it'll help the organization and yeah. their their department. And and uh, so once those goals are set, and that's the responsibility of the manager to make sure they're set, then the manager turns the pyramid upside down, and they work for them. And Peter Drucker once time told me that nothing good happens by accident. You have to put some structure on put it. Put some intention into it. And we started a thing that I think is so powerful called one-on-ones, which <laughs> Margie started in our company. She was working for D. Wiener Schnitzel, you know, a, <laughs> yep. a fast food company. And their average turnover is 
in, you know, 100% or yeah, more a year. Yeah, fast food industry, it is. And one guy had a couple of restaurants, and his turnover was like 15%. And Margie said, I got to talk to that guy, see what he's doing differently. And she went to see him. He said, I don't know what I'm doing. She said, come on, you are. He said, well, I do once every two weeks at a minimum talk to every one of my employees, hourly and managers, for 15 to 30 minutes on, on a one-on-one on one -on -one meeting. And I schedule a meeting, but they set the agenda, and they can talk about anything they want an issue at home, a goal yeah. they're working on. So if you have 26 meetings a year with each of your people for 15 to 30 minutes, you know them, they know you and Absolutely. all. And so Gary implemented that at WD-40. Builds a loyalty yeah. that they want to stay. He built that at WD-40. And then he also said a great thing. Once a quarter, uh, every manager meets with each of their direct reports. And the first thing they look at uh, is, uh, you know, the organizational goals and how they're doing, but then uh, they uh, talk about, you know, any issues they have or any, any things they want. And uh, then they have a report card that everybody fills out. Mm -hmm. And the report card says first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. And, and I always think it's stupid for managers to build forms out on your people. Why don't you let them fill the form out and you agree or disagree? Yeah. So they come into the hourly to the quarterly meeting and they, in the first quarter, if that's what it is, next to each goal that they write down, they give themselves an A, a B, or a C. We have no Ds or Fs. Yeah. And it's the job of the manager to agree or disagree that Coach they get an A, B. Yeah. But since the goal, goals are observable and measurable, and uh, anybody in another department can look at somebody's... It's not a surprise at the end of the year. No. Say, oh, wait, I didn't, I forgot about that goal that we set 11 months ago. Yeah, and so... They can even change their goals all the way to the beginning yeah. of the fourth quarter. So uh, the managers there know that their people, their managers are really on their side. And so yeah. WD-40 has just grown tremendously from about, you know, 300, uh, you know, 30 million to, you know, up in the billions. Publicly and, held. And, successful uh, Yeah. And uh, their uh, uh, engagement score the last time they did it was 92%. You know, we you saw just that. don't. These are people that are happy coming yeah. to work every day. Yeah, you just don't That's get unheard that. unheard of. Well, because, you know, there are people there for using servant leadership. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of last questions for you. If you were starting a new company from scratch today and there had to be one ultimate priority, that, like the, the, I think I know where you're going to go, but I'm going to give you a chance to answer it anyway. What would be the, the biggest priority? If you were starting from scratch, it's 40 years yeah. ago, you're launching the Blanchard Companies today. Well, you got to start with vision and direction. Okay. You know, I think the biggest thing that's lacking in companies is that you ask people what business they're in, and you get a different answer from everybody. And if you say, Absolutely. "What are your values?" they might say, "Well, they're on the wall somewhere." Since <laughs> Some manager and, wrote it and, and yeah. framed it, and, and so it. that's just you just really need to people need to know what business you're in, what your picture of the future is, where you're heading if you do a good job, what are your values that are going to drive your behavior, and then what should be the goals. And then once those are set, and that's the leadership part of servant leadership, yeah. then you can really implement. But that, uh, that would be my yeah. biggest advice. So what's the next book? Give us a, a behind-the-scenes here that well, maybe we don't I've know been, about. What are you writing? I've been, I'm working on a couple. One is a fun book called Duh, which is uh, Why <laughs> Isn't Common Sense Common Practice? You know, because I, you know, like to me, if you want great relationships and organizations, you ought to wander around and catch people doing things right. And yet when I go around the world and ask people how they know whether they're doing a good job, the number one response I get is nobody's yelled at me lately. You <laughs> yeah, know? that's right. No news is good news. Yeah, so still have a job. The number one leadership style around the world is seagull management. You know, they set a goal and then disappear, and then all of a sudden if you aren't performing well, they fly in, make <laughs> a lot of noise, dump on everybody. It's a great analogy. I love and, that. And fly out. Yeah. And uh, so that's fun. And then people are pushing my son Scott and I to write a book together because oh, yeah. he's a – become a great speaker and yeah. and uh, spokesperson for the company. And so we're it's going to start off with kind of what did he learn from me and what have I learned yeah. from him. And so that'll be kind of fun. It's interesting. A lot of the clients that I work with in family business, I, I lied a second ago. I said I had two questions, but now I'm throwing a third one in. I guess it's the prerogative I have of hosting this. Yeah. Um, a lot of my clients, one of the big issues they have is that succession plan. That's right. In your case, father passing to son. Right. Yeah. Talk a little bit, if you will, before I do wrap up. Um, what, what, what's the joy? What would you? What advice you give to that seventy-five-year-old dad or mom who just hasn't let go yet, hasn't yeah. turned the reins over to their child? Yeah. Well, what, what's worked for you, and what might you tell them? Well, I th I think the 
the important thing about leadership is not what happens when you're there, it's what happens when you're not there. Mm. And so someday you're not going to be there. And so what do you want? How do you want it to be? And yeah. you don't want people fighting and all that kind of thing. You want to really discuss the, the thing. And we've done a really pretty good job with our second generation, but now we're starting to talk about, well, what about the third generation? You know, what, yeah. what should be their, their role? Yeah, and so it's, a, as I say, when in doubt, confront, and when all else fails, try honesty. Try honesty. So yeah, I, I think you can't over-communicate. Okay. And I think you just need to keep on talking about it and, and anticipating what the issues are, and then let's see if we can work through. We've also brought in some financial advisors who are talking about, you know, what are we going to do with the legacy of Margie's and I inheritance money-wise and how... How can we spend that? And we've one of the things we've decided that we don't want to leave them all a bunch of money. But while we're still here, we're we're taking the family on big trips. So like we're heading in the end of the month, uh, hopefully down to New Orleans to, nice. to the World War II Museum. We oh, went wow. went to Normandy with them, and it's really amazing. My dad, as you know, was a admiral in the Navy, and I wish every American would go to this. It's an unbelievable museum. It's a, mm -hmm. about four or five acres and and they would realize that freedom is not free. Right. And uh, so we're taking the family. Plus, New Orleans is a great town. So you're building memories. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're leaving them with memories. That's what Absolutely. Margie says. Yeah. Our, she says we're in the, in the memory business. Love it. And uh, so that's, uh, that's really fun. So it's, uh, but we, we also uh, spend the summer in upstate New York. Margie's mm -hmm. mom and dad bought 300 feet of lake frontage on Skinny Atlas Lake, which is one of the mm -hmm. five finger lakes. Yeah. And for $300 in 1947, <laughs> this was Margie's, your money's worth there, Margie's yeah. 70th year at the, at the lake. Wow. And uh, so it's, uh, and we go up there every year, and now Scott has his own place, and now Debbie's building her own place. Excellent. And, and uh, we have a farm on the top of the hill where we store stuff and are doing stuff. And, and so uh, uh, everybody, you know, spends a good share of the summer back there. So... Uh, well, what you're doing is working. You've got a family that yeah. wants to stay together, which yeah. I hope you know how rare that is. That's right, yeah. You've got employees who, every time I'm here, I see people smiling from ear to ear. Yeah. They talk about what the company's about because they've internalized mm -hmm. it. So mm -hmm. obviously, what you've tried to implement 40 years ago, I would say from an outsider looking in, is certainly yeah. working. Well, it's really, and, and Margie's been really, really important yeah. about that. She, uh, everybody says she's kind of the glue for the family. <laughs> she just uh, has that... Uh, we call that the Com CEO, calmness. the chief emotional officer. Yeah, that you've got the spiritual, but she's got the emotional about, together. About her, yeah. Yeah, she's great. That uh, is it. So it's uh, this is the beginning of our 58th year of wow. our marriage. Congratulations! And so it's uh, getting more fun all the time. That's outstanding. Yeah. So Ken, the name of the podcast, as you know, is called From the Heart. Sort of a pun on my last name, but more importantly, the whole purpose of this is really to get, and we've just done that for the last hour. So I almost feel like it's somewhat redundant because I mm -hmm. think you already answered the question. But what's in your heart now? When you think about, or actually not even think, you go to your heart, where, where do you go? What's, what's just well, what's I think, inspiring? I or? think effective leadership is an inside-out job, okay. and I think it starts in the heart. Yeah. And so what's in my heart is, uh, you know, I just went through a health issue and all, mm -hmm. and I, so I asked the Lord, do you want me to hang around more and all? And <laughs> so the question is now, you know, in my 81st year, you know, what can I do to make a difference, you know, and how, uh, how I think when you finally realize that we're here to serve, not to be served, your yeah. life takes on a whole different yeah. uh, focus and, and uh, realizing that my mother used to say, if you do something good for somebody else, don't accept, some, expect something good to come back, but watch out, you'll be amazed at all the good <laughs> how that much comes back does, because yeah. if you serve others, they want to serve you yeah. and serve the people around you. Excellent. Well, I can't thank you enough for the time together with you today. You've oh, good. It's always been, good to be life with changing, you. And it's you. so nice to get this time together. And oh, uh, really appreciate you and, and the work that you're doing and the impact that you're making on just millions yeah. of people. Well, thank you, Ed. Special. And take care. You're doing good things for entrepreneurs and small business thank folks. You. And so it's great. Learning God. from the best right here. God bless. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening to From the Heart, a Fraser Industries Studios production. Created and hosted by Ed Hart. Directed and produced by me, Todd Frazier. Audio engineered by Jake Frazier. Edited by Christopher Cody. Special thanks to Dr. Ken Blanchard for this amazing interview. To find out more, 
go to phraseinc.com slash from the heart. F-R-A-Z-I-N-C dot com slash F-R-O-M-T-H-E-H-A-R-T. We'll see you in the next episode. Oh,